0: For those people who don't have any Indigenous ancestry, I want you to know you have just as much right as myself or any other person with Indigenous ancestry to engage in the conversation and the debate about Indigenous Australians, because far too often those uh, who identify as Indigenous think that they can control the discussion and silence other people.
1: Welcome to The Political Animals, I'm your host Jonathan Cole, I'm Assistant Director at the Centre for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University, and I work on the area of political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. My guest for this show is Dr Anthony Dillon, who is an Indigenous commentator and behavioural scientist and researcher at the Australian Catholic University. Anthony Dillon, welcome to The Political Animals. Thank you. Now, Anthony, we are going to dive straight into the morass of Indigenous affairs, one of the most complex, vexed, fraught, perilous (laughs) subject matters in in Australian policy and social life. And I want to begin with your own words. Uh, Anthony, for the benefit of listeners, has a fantastic website. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, Amongst other things, he writes uh, really probing blogs and i want to read just the first paragraph from a recent blog called stop sorry i want to read from a recent blog called stop pussyfooting around where indigenous children are concerned and this is the intro for many years i have been challenging the war cry of black and their supporters who promote the myth that indigenous australians are the victims of endless racism We are told that Coon Cheese is racist, the anthem is racist, and Australia Day is racist. We are told that racism is the cause of high incarceration rates and are fed the poisonous myth that Indigenous people in custody are more likely to die than non-Indigenous people in custody. The obsession of assumed racism is the perfect distraction from addressing the real problems facing Indigenous people like community violence and child abuse in all its various forms. Anthony, that is a very hard-hitting intro <laughs> to a blog. Uh, could you please expand and elaborate a little bit on these themes you've raised there?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I just feel there's some really important issues and many other Australians agree with me when I meet with people. Most reasonable, reasonably-minded Australians want Aboriginal people to live a life similar to you and I, um, you know, in that it's safe, we know where our next meal is coming from, we have some purpose, you know, it could be a job, uh, learning, whatever. And there are far too many Aboriginal people that don't have those sorts of opportunities. And yet the narrative, what we see, um, spoken by Indigenous leaders, black academics seems to be about culture and the white man's keeping us down and that sort of nonsense. So, and, you know, the examples you just gave, coon cheese, Australia Day and that sort of thing. Well, let's get adults into jobs, kids into school, and once we take care of that, then if you want to protest about Australia Day and coon cheese, go for it. But Let's get the priorities right.
1: Okay, so your main concern is one of priorities does that does that mean and i'd just like to push you a little bit on this to draw out your thinking do i take it then that you do accept that racism is a problem and for indigenous people it's just that it's not the priority because obviously uh removing racism doesn't feed people and address their basic social disadvantage
0: uh let let me clarify it i would go as far to say racism is not a major problem for Aboriginal people, okay? Aboriginal people are far more likely to be hated, slandered, kicked and killed by other Aboriginal people than by non-Aboriginal people. Most, not, and you know, yes, you always get an element of, of redneck racism, but it's, it's very small. Most Aussies, most most plain down-to-earth Aussies, uh, love Aboriginal people and just see them as they see themselves. Uh, and I, I think I could confidently say too, most aboriginal people just love non aboriginal australians who and just see themselves as equal equals but there's a small minority you know that what i call the blacktivists who are trying to promote discord and and make out that and aboriginal australians are the endless victims of uh, racism from non aboriginal people they are not and you know the fact that we have to um, you know the degree of mental gymnastics to see racism in a block of cheese um, or Australia Day, uh, and you know just attribute anything that goes wrong to racism is amazing. Um, so yes, racism exists. You know, like lightning strikes. You know, some people die from lightning strikes, but it's really not a big
1: killer. Can I just ask Anthony in relation to racism? I'm fascinated about this because um, I wonder, and if I could just start make this personal, even in your own lifetime, because there is this narrative, obviously, that uh, we hear this message all the time that Australia is not just a racist country; it's one of the most racist countries in the world, which you can only is only persuasive until you travel to other other countries, and I'll just give one little anecdote excuse me but i used to supervise a pakistani australian and uh she was a young girl at the time or a young woman highly educated her father had taken the family i think there were like two or three girls to saudi arabia he got a great job and he was he was working there and after a couple of years he brought them home because they they were treated so abysmally by the arab saudis which it's well known uh, a very bigoted when it comes to African Muslims, uh, Filipino workers, Palestinians, and particularly South Asian Muslims. And it was just so bad that he brought them back to the racist uh, place of Australia so that they could actually (laughs) live well-meaning lives. So I, I wonder, in your own lifetime, has Australia gotten less racist, stayed more or less the same, uh, I, I can tell you, you don't think it's become more more racist, but I actually wonder if there has been progress in this light. And just one final anecdote, just to bombard you to death with anecdotes. I did spend a, a brief but really fascinating time when I was a doctoral student at Charles Sturt. I studied. I had a desk next to an Indigenous uh, guy. He was actually a first grade rugby league play, he played for Balmain, like back in the in the 80s. He was a fascinating guy, and I, I asked him this, and I said, look, in your lifetime have things gotten better as an Indigenous man? And he said, oh, yeah, there's no doubt that it's much better now <laughs> than when I, when I was a kid. But then that that was just totally contrary to the mainstream narrative you get, not just from black us but I guess you could say white us, that is, white people who have really gotten onto this.
0: Yeah, um, improved greatly. Well, I mean, for for as long as I can remember, it's always been pretty good anyway. Yes, there's always that element, uh, but it's just, it's been good, getting much better. And something I I should mention is I think sometimes what happens is when white Australians are continually told, you know, stop your white-splaining, whitewashed, white supremacy. Um, You know, Australia Day, it's a day of... Celebration of genocide, absolute nonsense. I, I don't know one person who celebrates genocide on the 26th of January. Uh, you know, when when gollywog biscuits get taken off the shelf or renamed, repackaged, which were my favourite biscuits when I was a kid. Loved them. <clears throat> and um, in fact, in, fa- in my family, they call me gollywog. And um, my girl, I call her my gollywog because uh, of our hair. And although come 12 o'clock today, this is getting shaved off. Anyway, um, so when white Australians are always bombarded with accusations of you're, you're racist, and, you know, most most times it's collectively. You know, it's, it's not an individual who's pointed out, but just, you, well, you're white, you're Australian, so you must be racist. Sometimes they get a bit frustra- frustrated and will bite back. You know, or well, stuff you. And then people say, "Yeah, go oh, see, there's the racism. No, well, they were pushed and pushed and pushed. And as my good mate Dave Price up in Alice Springs says, if you leave the lid on the pot long enough, you know, it's going to boil over. And so when we do get, or when we do have people responding to these claims of racism, it's possibly, probably the case that white Australians have just had a gutful of being accused of being, Genocidal, um, you know, the colonizer, etc., that sort
1: of thing. Anthony, can I ask you what what is driving, or perhaps what has even generated this small group of Black activists, as you characterise them? What what are the kind of ideas animating this, and how how recently did this kind of movement emerge out of the indigenous right. community? Simple
0: answer. Okay, so it's been around for as long as I can remember couple of decades at least and there's two reasons why I think they're doing it first is as we spoke about before it's a huge distraction from dealing with child abuse violence in communities that sort of thing so it's a very convenient distraction and the second thing is there are uh, many people these blacktivists and black academics love to play the part of hero and savior and to use the analogy uh, I've used before, they're very, you know, those who set up these, you know, the grievance industry, the victim industry, and, you know, talk about the safe spaces, come here, we'll look after you, we'll make sure it's culturally sensitive, etc., etc. and you've been downtrodden by the white men. These people are like the butcher who's weighing your meat with his hands on the scales, you know? What's in it for him? Well, for these promoters of hate, there's a lot in it for them. They get to create their own little empires, and they get to be seen as saviors, okay? and you've got organisations. Um, one of them I won't name. Uh, uh what I will, you know, there there was a um a police force or a police commissioner. You know, made this apology. You know, uh, to Indigenous people. Uh, you know, I apologise on behalf of you know all those who committed racism against Aboriginal people. Blah blah blah. And of course, you know, no, no one's named, so it's very easy to make that sort of blanket apology, and people think, see, that proves that racism is a problem. No, it just proves that you had a woke police commissioner um, that wanted to, you know, look good. So again, again, let me just say it because my critics are out there are going to say, Anthony says racism doesn't exist. No, it exists, but it's it's a very small problem
1: for Aboriginal people. And Anthony just finishing off one other thing that was raised in that that excerpt that I I read out of your blog the issue of indigenous deaths in custody in custody which has gotten a lot of attention recently in the media uh, from what i understand from your argument and and other argument counter arguments i've heard the the whole debate is more nuanced than the the mainstream headline of you know look at this outrageous disproportionate number of aboriginals dying in custody but of course there is a massively disproportionate number of indigenous people incarcerated which in itself is a a really pressing problem but if you take that into consideration they actually and tell me if i've got this right aboriginals are dying at a lower rate than non-indigenous based on how many of them are in prison do i have that right
0: absolutely so so let me summarize it um an Aboriginal person is more likely to die in custody than a non-Aboriginal person. But once in custody, an Aboriginal person is less likely to die than a non-Aboriginal person. So, yes, because of the disproportionately large numbers, you've got, uh, you know, they make up close to 30% of the jail population, which is a shocking statistic. Nobody's denying that. But when you have a lot in custody, you know, don't be surprised that, you know, uh, a lot... Of the deaths are indigenous people, uh, so just the fact that there's more of them there in custody means you're going to have more of them die there in custody. And you get, you know, when it gets pointed out that they are less likely to die, well, then you get some idiot blacktivist who says, Well, no one should die in custody at all. Well, nonsense, people die, you know, you can't prevent deaths. Um, to use another analogy, I'm more likely to die in Australia than I am in any other country. Now, that's not because. Australia is a dangerous country or I'm more likely to die in New South Wales than I am in any other state. Not because New South Wales is a dangerous state to me, but I spend 90% of my time in New South Wales. So when my time's up, I'm more likely to be in New South Wales. You know, um, But you know, New South Wales, it's not a risk to me. Just like for Indigenous people, once they are in custody, they are no more likely, in fact, less likely to die than a non-Indigenous person in custody. But, you know, the statistic just keeps get, getting trotted out that they're more likely to die, and that gets interpreted as um, custody is a death sentence for Indigenous people. You know, when you've got people like Lydia Thorpe, you know, with her crocodile tears, uh, pretending to be so distraught over death in custody, we don't see the same emotional response when a an Aboriginal woman is found dead in a wheelie bin. Um, but if, if it's in custody, well, then out come the crocodile tears and this narrative of racist
1: Australia. So is Anthony the sort of racist subtext, or maybe what's the opposite of a subtext? The text of this narrative is that because Australia is a system set up by the white man, it's a, it's a colonial, neo-colonial venture and it's a kind of uh, white man's justice system that the the emphasis on the deaths in custody is that the they're trying they want they're inviting you to draw the link that somehow it's white racist police officers who are either mistreating or not giving Aboriginals in custody the kind of medical care and attention that they might give to a, a non-indigenous yeah.
0: And look just on that point, after a death, I mean, uh, hindsight bias is marvelous. Um, you know, people seem to have twenty twenty vision after the event. And for every death, whether it be black or white, you can always look back and say, "Well, it could have done this, should have done that." Um, and you know, as a frontline worker myself in the psychology profession, um, you know, it's in the back of my mind. But well, it there's a little fear. Um, and it hasn't become, you know, it's not, deaths in, in psychology settings isn't uh, hasn't become politicised, it may one day. But it's always in the back of my mind, after I've spoken with someone, assessed them, and they seem fine to me, there's always that small chance that they could go off and do something dangerous, stupid, take their lives. And then if you get a smart lawyer acting on behalf of a grieving family, There'll be accusations of, well, Anthony, you should have done this, you could have done that, you know, the signs were apparent, blah blah blah, um, you know, absolute nonsense. And that's what happens with death and custody. You know, you know, for each death, uh, for most times, okay, and I, you know, there is a margin where um, perhaps something could have been done better. But for most times, um, I think these services bend over backwards to look after the indigenous people. Hence, why. Once in custody, an Indigenous person is less likely to die than a non-Indigenous person in custody. So you know, the stats speak for themselves. Where's the racism in the stats? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you know, look at stats and numbers. They're they're numbers, they don't have colour. You know, they're not. They are stats are aren't
1: don't they? <laughs> um, just before we leave that and move on to another issue, Anthony. Um, I'm just curious, do you do you have a any Idea, theory, knowledge, or explanation—I guess—is the word I'm really grasping for here. For to explain that that truly shocking stat that I think you said thirty percent of our prison population are indigenous, and I—you'll correct me if I'm wrong—but I, I thought the total percentage of indigenous Australia or the total percentage of the indigenous population of Australia was something like two three percent. So that is an yeah. extraordinary. Disproportion. Do you have any idea how to we absolutely?
0: That? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, let's not be careful to conflate that statistic with death rates um, or deaths in custody. Look, a few things. Um, you know, first of all, well, first of all, let's acknowledge that there are many, many Indigenous Australians that are never going to come into trouble with the law because they're just ordinary citizens. Um, so what are the factors? Certainly education and poverty big factors. You know, if you live in poverty, you're more likely to get in trouble. Um, You know, if you're in a community town where there's very little to do, if you have, you know, if you had, you know, a thousand non-Indigenous people there with nothing to do, you're going to have big problems. You're going to have criminal activity. Okay. Um, So, you know, that's a a driver poverty. One of the other things is, Representation, you know, again, um, poverty plays a part here. Uh, If you are in in trouble with the law, you want to be able to have good representation. Are these people getting good representation? I don't know. Uh, I would suspect if you're poorer, you're probably not getting the best legal representation. Then there's the other thing which we don't like to talk about. And, you know, we see this particularly in the juvenile detention centres, and I've written about this before, uh, that one over in Western Australia where the kids talk about how they're safer in in detention. Uh, they get cared for. And I, uh, a decade ago, I was uh, assisting in some research and we were inv- interviewing Indigenous uh, inmates in a jail. And overwhelmingly, they said to me, yeah, it's good here because I get my meals and I get my medication. Okay. So that's not me saying, you know, that's not Anthony saying it's good for Indigenous people to be in custody. No, I'm just saying that Indigenous people do highlight that they, they do have some benefits there. And there was a um, an article about this in uh, a Western Australian newspaper just on the weekend, you know, saying a similar thing. Um, so, you know, the fact that for some of them, and in fact there was a an article on the ABC uh, a few years ago, and I'm happy to say for the record too, you know, ABC is bad as what they have been do um, bring to the public's attention stories on, indi- on, on Indigenous issues, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. So good on them for that. But this story on the ABC a few years ago spoke about how Indigenous women were committing crimes to get locked up in gi- prison to get away from their partners. Okay, So there's that element of it too. And to a degree, degree it becomes normalised. We hear that term, rite of passage. Um and so we certainly want to discourage that. So, you know, there's a few different layers to this, but, uh, you know, to use the blanket statement, oh, oh it's racism that's driving this, um, you know, that you know, that would account for, you know, 0.1 of 0.1%, maybe, or, you know, something ridiculously low. So, again, if we can get kids into school, uh, adults working or engaging in something productive, you'll see those
1: prison rates decline greatly. And while we're on the topic of racism, Anthony, let's bring in Bill Leake and his infamous cartoon. Bill Leake, of course, the late Bill Leak was a, well, this is my personal opinion, I thought he was a fantastic cartoonist at The Australian, known for his hard-hitting, provocative political cartoons. And he wrote one in particular. I know you've written on this, Anthony. Multiple times. And I, and I believe you knew Bill bill personally um and just for those who didn't see it or don't have the image to hand um it was a cartoon published in the australian in 2016 4th of august 4th of august and it portrays an indigenous police officer who is holding a young probably teenage indigenous boy by the scruff of his neck and he's talking to the boy's father who's looking down at the kid uh, with his hand in his one hand in his pocket and a, a beer can in the other and the cop says to the father you'll have to sit down and talk to your son about personal responsibility and then the father says yeah righto what's his name then now this to just created the mother of all furores and house of racism i believe the australian human rights commission even launched an inquiry or an investigation i think it was the then Race Discrimination Commissioner, Tim Soup-Pommerson, who was leading the, the charge there. So two two questions just to introduce this part of the conversation, Anthony. Uh, what, I'm, I'm interested, as an Indigenous man, what was your immediate reaction when you saw the cartoon before all of the hoopla? And, and what do you think of the whole controversy around it?
0: Uh, interesting. I just had an, an immediate reaction when you said the Indigenous policeman, because... Not many people notice that. They all focused on the Indigenous father and the Indigenous boy. No one spoke about the Indigenous policeman. Uh, so anyway, look, uh, and what happens, you know, these things so often, all it takes is just one person to shout racism. Um, and I've, I've joked with a friend, if I just take a little detour here, um, it's funny at the moment, you know, back in the days when we used to fly, which we'll be doing soon, when a plane would land... <laughs> the pilot wouldn't do a, an acknowledgement of country. Okay. That doesn't happen. Now, all it's going to take is for one person to say, I think it's terribly offensive that, you know, when these planes come into the airport, that there's not an acknowledgement of country and, you you know, you could, you could pay some old indigenous fellow and call him an elder and get him to say that he's deeply offended about it. And it'll catch on like a wildfire. So what happens? It just takes one person to say, Oh, that cartoon's racist. And then they all jump on the bandwagon and, you know, they get excited. Uh, For them, it's a mental masturbation. They love it. Um, So what happened? Okay, here's the context. Um, Every night I I read the Australian newspaper at 12 o'clock when it's released. And if there's an interesting story or cartoon, I send it out to my network of about uh, 20 or 30 people. And, you know, just say, oh, look, you know, this is interesting. And I'll comment about it. And... I did this on the night of Bill's cartoon. So, you know, 12 o'clock at night, I sent this out and it was just, I just thought, oh, you know, this is great because I'd been following the story about Dondale detention and he'd done a great cartoon a week before where it's got uh, Malcolm Turnbull watching the TV saying, "Um, look at the conditions these kids are in, That you know, these kids should be at home. And the wife's saying, they are at home. And, you know, (laughs) nobody said anything about that cartoon. So I knew the context that, you know, it was basically that Indigenous kids, many of them are in terrible homes, living under terrible conditions. And I get social workers telling me this too often. Uh, they say, look, Anthony, we can tell it to you. But, you know, we'll be accused of race, being racist if we tell it to other people. And like, they tell me about these appalling conditions that many Indigenous kids are in and they're not allowed to be removed. So I sent the cartoon out just thinking, yeah, this is a great cartoon. And that's, you know, that's all I thought about at the time. And I sent it to my father as well. I said, Dad, look, you know, look at this great cartoon Bill's done. He's able to sort of, you know, add some humour, but at the same time not lose the seriousness of it. And I think that's the mark of a brilliant cartoonist where they can um, add a bit of humour but also have a great message, a bit like the Farrelly brothers in their movies, you know, like Shallow Howe, they can have a funny but can have a really good, deep, important message there. And that's what Bill would do in his cartoons. And my father replied back, and you know, for the context, my father, Australia's very first Aboriginal police officer, which by the way was, you know, the least of his claims. He was just seen as being a very credible police officer, first honest officer to step forward during the Fitzgerald years to give evidence of corruption into inquiry. Um he you know, he had been offered bribes and refused it. Um so anyway, that's um, said, yeah, great credit. That was the end of it. I thought, okay, yeah, that's that's the end of it. Bill phoned me later that morning, and I think I'd sent the feedback to Bill, but he phoned me in the, in the morning said, Anthony, you'll never guess what's happened. And he was telling me he was getting all this criticism. I thought, what? And so I phoned out. I said, look, Dad, Bill's uh, getting all this criticism, and and and. Bill and Dad uh, had met each other and were great admirers of each other. I said, Dad, would you mind giving call to Bill and just offering him a bit of encouragement? My father did. And Bill spoke to me after the conversation. And Bill went from being here up to being here because Australia's first Aboriginal police officer had endorsed the cartoon. I had very dear friends that they were truck drivers and they, they do a long truck drive. Takes them up into the Northern Territory. And they said they have many Indigenous friends up there who saw nothing wrong with the cartoon. Um, so, you know, it was just a few idiots. He said, This is racist. And it was an opportunity for the Black and Victim Brigade to hop onto
1: the bandwagon. Anthony, it actually makes me wonder to what extent the problem here is really a white problem and not a black problem in that given we're talking about a small, loud, vocal minority of the indigenous community, and this is how all activism works, let's face it, this is not a a black, white issue, whether it's climate or issue X, Y, and Z, all it takes is a small, organized, dedicated, committed group. But to what extent is it this anxiety and perhaps guilt amongst a, a much larger set of your average white australian who the moment a single black voice says racism they they do not want to stand up to that or even question it because of we've all been told about the history and white colonialism oppression and i and i i can see how your average white australian for the best of intentions is going to just uncritically respond to any black yep. blacktivist voice
0: yeah, and I, I've written about this I have to before. I stress
1: that's your turn, otherwise I might get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, quote me. I've,
0: um, you, you know, no no doubt as, as this is going to air, the hate mail is going to my employer as we speak. Um, yeah, I've spoken about this before. And I believe what happens is there are many uh, good Australians, good white Australians, who are concerned about the problems we spoke about before, you know, child abuse, poverty violence, uh, living in unsafe, unclean conditions, all that sort of thing. you know. And f- so for many white Aussies who sit there in their comfortable chairs, in their air-conditioned room, uh, et cetera, they're, they're either feeling guilty or they're feeling, what can I do? And a very simple solution to sort of ease that problem, that dissonance they're feeling, is to support someone who says Australia is racist, uh, or, you know, make the claim themselves, you know, when they see coon cheese and they say they can say, oh, that's racist. Oh, I feel better now. I've taken a stand against racism. I've helped the Aboriginal people. I've, my conscience is clear. So, you know, very simple solution. You know, virtue signaling. Uh, people love to do it. So, of course, the problem is the problem isn't solved. You know, we've yeah. still got this, the same Indigenous people living in conditions that we wouldn't let a dog live in.
1: So you know what that means, uh, Anthony, if I could just uh, depict the situation from a kind of macro view. You have, picking up your, your thread of thinking, you have what you might call mass distraction by Aboriginal activists who want us to focus on anything but yeah. child abuse, violence, and poor conditions. And then you, you have a mass white audience that, doesn't want to be distracted, but wants something very cost-free and painless to Cost ease free, yeah. their conscience. Because at the end of the day, and I say this now, speaking it as as a white Australian whose roots do go back to the early colonial days, that you know, although most of us don't feel directly responsible in that we, I've never even been to most of these communities, we're all aware that we are the beneficiaries of a society that was built on the back yeah. of dispossession. There was a legacy of racism. Let's face it. We all know the story about the constitution and, you know, the horrible impact of disease, which no one intended. But yeah. And, of course, they were on the frontiers there, there was violence. There were, were killings on both sides, but it, it, the whites killed a lot more blacks based yeah. on the historical record. And so there, there is this, there, there's a sense not, you know, when we hear about, aboriginal disadvantage and poverty it's not the same as hearing about it in africa this is mm-hmm. the country where we white people are born True. and make our living and have all of the luxuries of a of the prosperous nation that australia is and there, there is this thing in the back of our minds where we're aware that it was built on suffering and so there, and so this is a really easy cost free so in a way they're a marriage in heaven because one party wants distraction and the other desperate to be distracted <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, there's no denying it was a bad past, um, but also let's not forget uh, Indigenous people weren't living in paradise, especially if you're a woman, prior to colonisation. And so bad things happen, but as many, many Indigenous people have proven, we are never, ever victims of our past, but only ever victims of our view of the past. So, you know, we're not trying to change the past. But we cannot keep saying, well, every time something goes wrong, it's because of colonisation. That's absolute nonsense. Uh, now, just while I think of it, to to show you, demonstrate how caring and generous white Australians are towards um, Indigenous people, I had a fellow make contact with me uh, a couple of months ago. And we had a conversation, a really good bloke. He lives down um, south. He said, Anthony, I have a... Thousand acres of pristine land, and I want to use it to help Aboriginal people. And I, s- can you help me? I said, Well, look, mate, I'm really dumb when it comes to these things, but I'll uh, I'll ask who I can. Um, and so I've I've made some inquiries, and you know, it it obviously you know some sort of investment would be need would need to be made in terms of in- infrastructure and that. But the point is, he says I've got some land, and. I'm happy for it to be used, Anthony. I'm happy for you to give guidance on how it can be used for Aboriginal people. Um, so, you know, I thought, what a beautiful, generous o- offer, this non-Indigenous fella. And he contacted me. He said, Anthony, I've, I've watched you and I like your, your style and your thoughts, so that's why I'm, I'm approaching you. But, um, you know, and there are many other Australians who uh, are just as generous in spirit. They don't have the resources he has, but they're just as generous anyway to help indigenous people so i thought i'd just throw that
1: in yeah that's, that's great to inject that into the conversation and if i can do the same when you mentioned there anthony that indigenous the indigenous people of australia contrary to some views weren't living in some utopian yeah. <laughs> paradise prior to the evil white man arriving and that of course brings us to bruce pascoe and the book, <laughs> Dark Emu, I hope you enjoyed that segue. The, the basic thesis of this book, of course, is that contrary to a longstanding scholarly consensus, Aboriginal people it were is not, there. It is were not living actually a hunter-gatherer lifestyle or type of um, uh, social organisation. They were, contrary to everything we thought we, we knew, and contrary to what most Aboriginal people thought, about their own history, they were living a sedentary agricultural lifestyle in a sophisticated um, civilization. And of course, this book is highly, highly celebrated. Uh, there's a children's version which is taught in primary schools. It's, it's won all kinds of awards, had loads of media attention. But but recently, a couple or well, a couple two uh, eminent anthropologists wrote effectively a rebuttal really taking him to task on his use of sources, his, got
0: that here too, yeah.
1: his evidence. So I want to ask you, Anthony, what do you make of this whole controversy?
0: Yeah, look, it's something I wrote about in the Epoch Times, and that you said before... Um, you spoke about that marriage, those two groups. What were those two groups? Oh,
1: the, the mass distraction and the other group that wants to be distracted, both both, yeah. both not wanting to address the, the very confronting real issues. We've
0: kind of got a similar issue here. We um, And what what the book Dark Emi does, there's this insinuation that, you know, hunter-gatherer uh, is, um, you know, not sophisticated, not great. And so the Indigenous people were far, far better than that. When in actual fact, one of the good things Sutton and Walsh did, among others, have pointed out, and I was I was writing something about this last night. I have got this uh, good book um, called "I the Aboriginal," I the Aboriginal, um, and he talks about. So it's a biography of this Aboriginal full blood Aboriginal man, and he talks about I can read f- footprints the way you read a newspaper, and he just spoke about. You know his keen eye for surveying the environment and the things he does, and so the point is, and Sutton and Walsh do a fantastic job talking about this. They let the reader know that the hunter-gatherer was super sophisticated. Okay, so Darky, you know, tends to suggest, well, hunter-gatherers not that great, it's a bit backward, and I can rescue uh, indigenous people by portraying them as these sophisticated farmers. But Walsh and Sutton have pointed out, no, hunter-gatherer was really uh, far, far more advanced than what you and I will ever be. And so, yeah, uh, that's, what's, that's what's happened there. And, um, you know, the, the book is very seductively written. You, you read Dark Yumi and it, the words flow beautifully, but it's not until you either check the references yourself, the whole ref- references yourself, or, or look in Sutton and Walsh's works, to see that there's um, distortions, to put it mildly, going on here. And that's a pretty strong claim. And, you know, if I produced a body of work which I was proud of and someone made those claims against me, I'd have their arse in court. <laughs> um, I haven't seen any uh, anything like that, um, you know, so it makes you wonder.
1: And, again, I can see how the embrace of this book the kind of uncritical embrace of the book, mm. again, feeds into the this theme we've been talking, pointing to about white Australia and how white Australia yeah. is a really necessary part of some of the distortions on the Indigenous question that we have, because, again, I can see how this is part of what, what you might call a desperation for atonement. <laughs> and yeah, so absolutely. But again, to your point, I mean, is it atonement or is it, a, is it even a very subtle form of racism to think that, oh, you know what, we feel better about Indigenous Australians if we if we can say they were more sophisticated rather yeah. than being primitive, given notwithstanding what you said about we've got a mis- misguided notion of what primitive is. And on that point, I would just note that, you know, this primitive hunter-gatherer life- lifestyle did allow Indigenous people to thrive in this continent for tens of thousands of years. So it couldn't have been too bad And the sophisticated white man, when he arrived, almost starved to death within within the first month. So what are we talking about when it comes to sophistication?
0: Um, If I can just quote from the book, I, the Aboriginal, by Wajiri Wajiri, that's his name, Aboriginal name, written in 1962. He said, today, I read the ground as other people read newspapers and books. The footprints by my family are as familiar to me as their faces. Where I now live, I know at least 50 people by the track they leave on the ground. I mean, that's a a super intelligence. Mm, And By the way, uh, in universities, I sometimes teach on uh, Indigenous psychology or psychology with an Indigenous perspective, which is going to upset a a few of my critics out there. And I sometimes talk about intelligence, and I talk about how intelligence uh, is always... Intelligence always needs a context. Um, So a person isn't intelligent. They're always intelligent within a certain environment. Um, And I say, well, if you look at the environment of the traditional Aboriginal people, the conditions they lived under, they are uh, traditionally, they were the most intelligent people in the world because, you know, the, the intelligence they needed in order to do what they did, just as, you know, I just read. Just shows their super intelligence.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. The other, the other thing, Bruce Pascoe, the other avenue of controversy and discussion, discussion Bruce Pascoe opens up is this question of aboriginal identity, which I've got to say I find, <laughs> from an intellectual perspective, the most, in some ways, the most fascinating aspect of this whole mosaic. Now there have been some members of the Indigenous community have challenged his Aboriginality or Indigeneity. I'm not even sure what the what the best language is um, here. Now, I think all listeners will, will be aware that Indigenous identity is very complex because, and, and it really is a spectrum. On the one hand, you've got people living in Arnhem Land who speak English as a second language. And whilst they're, they've, they've adopted many Western ways, they still have a lot of the culture that would have pre-existed settlement. And then you have lots of Indigenous living in urban centres. In fact, I think the majority of Indigenous Australians live in big cities like the rest of Australia. But there are people, um, there's this strange situation. I say it's strange because I'm struggling to think of parallels in any other cultural context where someone who has a sort of modest, shall we say, amount of, aboriginal dna yeah doesn't claim an aboriginal heritage but embraces a completely aboriginal identity and some of the leading activists seem to be people whom you might not actually know just from looking at them were indigenous now the interesting thing and i want to bring in a personal story here is yeah. and you don't know this anthony and i guess listeners won't know but i'm actually 20 percent jewish which was no surprise to me, but I've, I've had my DNA done. I knew I had a Jewish ancestor that migrated to Sydney in the early 1900s from Crimea. But, of course, you know, I've got an English surname, and, and actually that's more uh, than my English DNA. Scottish is my, my, my highest. Now, of course, that's enough DNA for me to feel some connection to the Jewish people, but I'm not Jewish by religion. Mm-hmm. I've never walked the day... A day in my life in the shoes of a jewish person i've never confronted anti-semitism i don't really have i have no connection to any real jewish community and so it would probably be preposterous for me and maybe regarded as offensive for me to claim yeah. <laughs> jewish Let's... identity so why what is it about indigenous identity yeah. and can you help well, us understand how this works that sure people, for example can discover an indigenous heritage in adult life, and then become indigenous. Like um,
0: we, we spoke the other, we had a brief conversation the other day, and we agreed that there are some things we just can't talk about. Uh, you know, in a of and then yeah, this is kind of getting onto one of those. So I'm going to um take the easy way out and, and just say, look, person can identify how however they want to. You know, if they if they have, one of their great 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 grandparents was Aboriginal and the rest were non-Aboriginal and they want to be Aboriginal, that's fine. Let them do it. I would just, two important things. Don't be surprised if someone asks you why are you identifying that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think people have a right to say, you know, how come you're identifying like that? It's not a sign of racism. Uh, They're just curious. Okay. And the second thing I would say, and I realize I'm, I'm not answering your question directly because I'm trying to avoid that trouble we spoke about the other day. But I would also add, for those people who don't have any Indigenous ancestry, I want you to know you have just as much right as myself or any other person with Indigenous ancestry to engage in the conversation and the debate about Indigenous Australians. Because far too often, those who uh, who identify as Indigenous think that they can control the discussion and silence other people, and say, "Well, you know, you wouldn't know. You're only white splaining, etc., cetera, etc." No. Um, when it comes to identity and anything related to Indigenous people, non-Indigenous people have just as much right to have, uh, you know, engage in the discussion. A couple of my good friends, um, I've got a mate in Western Australia. Uh, I've got a couple of mates in Western Australia. Dave Price that I mentioned, many of their descendants and family. Are indigenous, even though they're not indigenous themselves, are they to be excluded? Absolutely not. Um, so yeah, you know, everyone has the right, and it's it's interesting. You know, when people say, "Oh well, with indigenous identity, it's you know, it should only be discussed by indigenous people. It's got nothing to do with non-indigenous people." That's a absolute nonsense because here in Australia, when we decide who is Indigenous and who's not, uh, who's Indigenous, we're automatically deciding who's not Indigenous as well. Um, so, you know, everyone has a right to talk about identity and also Indigenous matters, just like uh, Indigenous Australians, you know, whether they be full-blood, and there's nothing wrong, there's nothing offensive about that term at all. Um, my friend, my sister, I, I can rightly call her my sister, Best Price, uh, full-blood Aboriginal, Australian is proud of that term full-blood it's not racist at all but my point is you know whether it be a full-blood indigenous Australian or some of these you know lighter skinned ones which you mentioned earlier, they all have a right to talk about issues that have nothing to do with indigenous people okay So no you know if there's a you know if there's a small community, small town where there's no indigenous people, we would never say oh an outsider indigenous person doesn't have a right to have an opinion yes they do okay? Indigenous people have a right to talk about non-indigenous issues, and non-indigenous people have a right to talk about indigenous
1: issues. Does that make sense? Sure, it does. I would I would even go further than that, Anthony, and say that you know an, an important part of reconciliation, integration, or just without all any any politically laden turn cohabitation is understanding. And it's impossible to understand someone that has a different experience from you if you're not allowed to ask questions because um, its I think it's a mistake to think, well, we can just tell people who are different from us who we are, and that explains everything. And, I, and I, can, I can assure you, not that you need assurance, that non-Indigenous Australians have many, many questions but are too timid to ask them. And I think it's a mistake if there are elements of the Indigenous community who want to shut down that discussion because it doesn't automatically lead to racism and bigotry. Like to, just to explain the motivation for even raising that term, um, uh, sorry, the, the raising the issue of identity, it's because it is clearly complex. And because it's complex as a, an intellectual scholar, I find it fascinating because it, it's, it's unique in that there is something powerful and intriguing and mysterious about aboriginal identity that makes it more complex than other identities and i want to understand it not because i have a problem with it and like you if if you're 0.03 percent indigenous and you want to and you identify as indigenous I, I, that, i've got no problem with that and not only no problem i have no right in my view to interfere with that people get to determine their own identity it's yeah. a personal thing but they shouldn't silence
0: other people um, and just, I just want to pick up on one point. You used the word complex there a few times. Yeah. Complex, but unnecessarily so. I think some make it more complex than what it needs to be, but we'll leave that for another
1: discussion. Okay. That, um, that's so intriguing. I want to dive in, but but uh, we do have to move on and uh, yeah. time is escaping. So we'll leave. We'll, okay, we've, we've left that unresolved, but I think we have resolved that it it's an area that we probably – Indigenous and non-Indigenous should probably discuss more, not because the non-Indigenous have a say in what the identity is, but just in in aid of understanding. Generally speaking, the word complex is often a euphemism for awkward or inconvenient.
0: Um, You know, we talk about a problem and someone will say, well, look, it's complex. Well, no, it's not really. Uh, We can see what's wrong with just political correctness prevents us from talking
1: about it all right so let's go to something less complex uh namely white privilege and critical race theory <laughs> in the few seconds with the few minutes we've got left i mean just quickly what what you know white privilege is something we hear a lot about these days critical race theory highly controversial but sort of gaining a lot of traction is critical race theory big amongst indigenous uh, people or what look, is-
0: um, let me say i'm going to go on the outside here i think critical race theory i think some people are making a, a bigger deal of it than what needs to be done. Again, it's um, just as, you know, to use the spectrum of left-right, which is oversimplistic, uh, I think sometimes it just as you'll have the, the left obsessing about race, you seem to have some people on the right, good people, by the way, who are obsessing about this demon critical race theory. That's not to say it doesn't exist and it doesn't have implications, but I think they are magnifying it. Bigger than what it is, and it's you know, it, it's a chance for them to be a savior and you know, preach it to the world and that sort of thing. But coming back to things like white privilege, uh, I mean, just just you know, another cop out, whitesplaining. You know, a white person offers an opinion, and they're accused of whitesplaining. Um, you know, white supremacy. It's just an attempt again to to um, silence other people. And, uh, you know, you, you, put people into these camps, uh, and it's, you know, it doesn't help anyone. Um, so, you know, it's basically identity politics. Um, and I, I saw a, a good quote on this the other day, if I can just get this out. Um, okay. This is, okay. People are getting very good at as assigning a tribal identity to someone as if that's a skill. That's not a skill. That's lazy thinking. That's cheap, but it's what the social media does. Okay? And that's by Professor Alan Davison um, out at UTS. And so, you know, planning in those terms are basically just identity politics.
1: It's cheap. Did that make sense? Sure did. Yeah. Got nothing to add to that. You're, you, you just preach to the choir, but there's nothing <laughs> wrong with preaching to the choir. Yeah. ministers do it every yeah. Sunday and let's hope too
0: that this uh, broadcast doesn't just go to the choir we want it to go to everyone so
1: indeed we'll, we'll do our best uh, just uh, can I finish here Anthony um, yeah. you know when I reflect back on my childhood in the 80s you know I remember you know we all dressed up as convicts there was a really kind of positive celebratory view of the um, you know, the first. I remember spending an inordinate amount of time on the first fleet and the names of the ships and this or that. And you know, to be honest, the what the Aboriginal story was kind of either absent or it was didgeridoos, boomerangs, dingoes, and kangaroos. It was this light-hearted sort of uh,
0: rainbow serpent.
1: Yeah there there was there was no. Yet, in my lifetime, I think there has been a reckoning, reckoning, certainly on the the history question. I think now the whole of white Australia has a much more honest understanding of settlement and its impact on Indigenous people. There's been lots of changes from the national apology to um, using welcome to countries, which is done even in um, internal meetings sometimes that I've been to in, in certain organisations. Now, people may have a different view on that. My point is there has been a kind of generational shift in in terms of both trying to reckon with Australia's true history but also an attempt to better honour and integrate the Indigenous um, community in Australia. Sure. What What is... But we, but we, where we began this conversation was with some sort of uh, persistent, terrible, shocking problems that seem intractable. What, what is, what is still to be done, and what, what and what can be done? That's where I want. If, to do, be. if I can just interrupt, because yes, you know, I've got to wind this up.
0: Uh, it's great that we've seen this change. You know, it's in the schools now. You know, it's in the curriculum and all that sort of thing. That's great. However, for those people who are of my generation. Who claim that when they went to school it didn't happen and they are somehow suffering because of it? Total BS. Uh, I said BS instead of in case I wasn't allowed to say bullshit. But like, <laughs> total BS. Don't tell me you're suffering because you know you, you weren't told these things at school. Uh, you know, just absolute nonsense. So yeah, let's celebrate that it is happening uh, and that it continues to be. But uh, if you know if we are going to going to talk about history let's do a warts and all history and let's not paint the picture of pre-colonisation, uh, traditional living as some utopia. Certainly there are many beautiful aspects, but also, you know, let's look at the good, bad and the ugly.
1: And what is left to, I mean, you've got a, you've got a fairly positive view of the situation, I've got to say, which is refreshingly different from um, what it's we It's not hear.
0: optimistic. It's not optimistic.
1: Well, that, that's what I want to, want to say. I mean, I mean, I know you don't think we're there yet because we, we talked about the incarceration rate, the poverty um, disadvantage. I mean, what, what what are some key things you can leave us with that okay. the key things we have to do and that we can do to take the next step towards okay. reconciliation, improving Indigenous conditions and what, what have you? Have
0: conversations like this and for Indigenous people who are like me, and there are many out there, don't be afraid of being criticised and hated by your own mob when you do speak out. And as I said before, for the non-Indigenous people, you have just as much right as I do to weigh in and have an opinion on Indigenous people. Uh, My opinion, my thoughts, my solutions aren't necessarily better than yours. So we have to get away from this nonsense so that only Indigenous people uh, can offer solutions for Indigenous problems. Now, how about just people offering solutions for problems affecting people. So, you know, get away with the, the identity politics. As a non-Indigenous person, you have every right um, to express your opinion. My mother has the same rights as my father to have an opinion about, you know, as, when I was a kid, what I should do, and even now as an adult.
1: Anthony, I think that's a great note to finish on. I, I really appreciate your, your fresh... Uh voice your perspective your your courage in uh speaking out on let's face it difficult issues and it's been a real pleasure to get to know you and to have this conversation with you
0: yeah, it's been great chatting with you <laughs>